Welcome to our next episode on Dialogi Patristica, the podcast of the Center for Ancient Christian Studies. So in this episode, I, Sean Wilhite, sit down with uh, Rick Brannon, who is the information architect at Lagos Bible Software. So during our time, we're going to hear from Rick about his interests in the Apostolic Fathers and a little bit of his interest in the New Testament apocryphal writings. Uh, we hope you enjoy this discussion. We're currently at the SBL National Meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, 2015, and our guest today is Rick Brannon. Uh, Rick is an information architect at Lagos Bible Software. Uh, he's the general editor of the Lexham English Septuagint, the Greek Apocryphal Gospels, the Apostolic Fathers, and most recently, the Latin Vulgate. Uh, Rick's interests extend from, the, from Greek and, and discourse grammatical studies uh, all the way up to early Christianity. Uh, he's done some work on, uh, with his work on the Apostolic Fathers, he had, his interest extends there, as well as into the New Testament Apocrypha. Really, over the, over the years, he has been involved um, in SBL and presenting papers there on, on some of these topics. So, Rick, it's, it's really good to be with you. Hey, thanks, Sean. Yeah, if you can uh, maybe just open up for us, what uh, kind of a personal question, why did you begin studying early Christianity? Why was this an interest for you? Why do you uh, kind of write in this area? Well, it, um, first of all, a little correction is I have nothing to do with the Latin Vulgate. Um, we do have a new product that's coming up. Uh, an interlinear for that, but I'm just kind of technical help on it. I haven't okay. done any editing on it. <laughs> good. So, trust me, you don't want Latin because it's going to sound like Spanish. Okay. And that's not going to be good. <laughs> good. Um, so as far as me beginning to study early Christianity in my personal journey, um, that, that's a really good question because part of it stems from just working at Lagos. I've worked at Lagos for over 20 years. Um, and part of it was just the milieu I was in is that this stuff became really interesting to me. Um, I was had always been interested in the pastoral epistles. And around 2001, 2002, I decided in earnest, I was like, all right, that's what I'm going to study. So I started working on it. And that's like a lot of people, no matter who you talk to, is going to put that as those as some of the later Pauline epistles, pretty much. There's some guys who think they're really early, few and far between. Um, but so what it really got me into is this scene between the New Testament and what happened after, right? It's like the mystery of the second century. Um, we got some things, but we have a whole lot more information later on. It's like this blank spot. So I started looking at the pastorals, and then a colleague of mine said, well, you should really read the Apostolic Fathers. And I had started to run into references to those in in commentaries and elsewhere. So I thought, i got to read this stuff. So I started reading it. And then after I started reading that, I was like, this is really interesting stuff here in the second century. Um, and it just sort of went from there. So I was able to start working on projects at Lagos. The first thing I did was a reverse interlinear between Lake's edition of the Apostolic Fathers and his Greek. Uh Um, And that got me into the material more. And from there, it just sort of blossomed and burgeoned. And I just basically took or made opportunities. And there was a Septuagint in there somewhere. (laughs) There's apocryphal gospels in there somewhere. But I think the, the thing that ties it all together is, at least for me, is this time period, like right after the apostolic time period. So we're talking late first century, second century, and even early third century. It's like... What happened there, and what can we learn about it? How does that affect how we read the Bible? Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, what have been some key books or some key thinkers along the way? Um, you, you, maybe you've gravitated towards, or or they that these thinkers have helped you think deeply about some of the things you've been you've been working on. Um, key books. Uh, that's a good question. 
That's the second time I've said that. Okay. So you must ask me really good <laughs> yeah, questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, as far as key books, I mean, I don't really have like a like a theological historical book I can recommend you. Um, there was linguistically the the thing that lit it off for me was Rungi's discourse grammar because now to me conjunctions aren't these weird words that you don't know what to do with that it's and or but or something like that right? Right, right so it actually gave me tools to use when I'm looking at how conjunctions hold the text together so that was key because we're talking Greek here um, one of the other books there's a um, there's a book I don't, I don't have it off the top of my head but it's um, Jewish Believers in, it was published by Hendrickson originally, and now Baker, it's a title for Baker, but it's like um, Jewish Believers in Jesus or something like that. Um, it was really awesome. It's a collection of essays okay. just focused on this time period. Um, another book that was really awesome from my perspective was um, um, Early Christians in Rome from Paul de Valentinus by mm-hmm. Peter Lampe. Okay, yes. Um, that is an awesome book. Just And it w- wasn't awesome because of it was awesome because of what it said, but it was awesome because what he was able to do was take a whole bunch of information from a whole bunch of different areas and mix it together. And you could see how he did it. So rather than just tell you, this is this is what's going on, it's like you had all sorts of all sorts of influences from all sorts of things. And he was putting them together for you and walking you through Christianity in Rome. And he sort of laid enough breadcrumbs in there so you could see how he did it. Okay. And it was just a really good example of how we can take a bunch of data or a bunch of information about things and start to make some good guesses and tell you what went on there and, and put things together. It was just a really, really good version of that. I've gone back and I've read that book and the Jewish Believers in Jesus book actually a couple of times. Oh, wow. Just Excellent. because they're, yes. they're, they're just top-notch as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, so we've talked a little bit about early Christianity. Maybe if you can define early Christianity for us and, and maybe give a, give a few reasons. Why should others be interested in the discipline? Well, so early Christianity, I may be the wrong guy to talk to, um, but I, I, I would have a very generic, serviceable, pragmatic definition, and that would be like after the New Testament. Okay, right? yeah. Second century. Yeah. Early third century. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much it. It's like yeah, what great. happened in that time frame. That's mm-hmm. that's what we're looking at. Yeah, great. From, from my perspective. So as far as current trends and types of things, again, I, I don't know if I'm the right guy to talk to because half the time I feel I, I suffer from imposter syndrome, <laughs> okay. right? It's like, why yeah. am I here and why are these people talking to me <laughs> and how can I possibly say anything irrelevant yeah, to these yeah, people? Yeah, yeah. Um, but as far as trends, um, I've noticed that there is a... The, the literature of the second century is becoming prominent again, hmm. meaning you hear more about apostolic fathers, you hear more about Clement and Polycarp and Ignatius, and it bubbles more into commentaries now, I think. Hmm. Um, I also think you're hearing more about Apocrypha, New Testament Apocrypha and Old Testament Pseudepigrapha, all that sort of stuff, that helps you establish the milieu of that environment and lets you see how they actually use this stuff. Um, I think it's really interesting, especially when we start to get into the New Testament or Christian Apocrypha, because for me, what you end up seeing is you, you've got these people, and they become real, at least when I read it, because you see how they struggled with these things. It's like, the ancients weren't dumb, right? They knew that a virgin birth was impossible, and that's a hard thing to believe in. Yeah. So you get things like Proto-Gospel of James that talk about a way that that becomes palatable, right? You see the struggle of between what somebody thinks about and what their faith is telling them is true and what they know to be true from their own experience. And, and a lot of that stuff, not all of it, some of it's pretty wacko, I'll, I'll give you. But there's a lot of it where you, you that's, that's the mesh you're working with. And to, 
to, to work through that information and then let that come into how you read the Bible in a sense that this is the product of real people and these are real people who believed and this is what they were they were led to write it's it's just a it's just an interesting area to be yeah no that's great that's great maybe maybe if you can uh, just share a few things of, of what you're working on you mentioned the New Testament part but maybe share yeah because I know that you've you've done uh, there, there's a forthcoming work where you're where you've contributed to that so maybe talk about that and some other projects that you're working on yeah so um Tony Burke and Brett Landau are publishing with Erdman's the New Testament Apocrypha volume. Um, it's like a follow-on to Eliot, mm-hmm. New Testament Apocrypha volume yeah. is how it's situated. In the same way that um, Jim Dabla and Richard Bauckham's oh, Old Testament right. Pseudepigrapha yeah, Pseudepigrapha. is a follow-on to Charles Worth. It's right. like these these two volumes are cousins, if they're not brother and sister. Um, so I have a, a section about that volume about what's called John and the Robber. Um, it's a text from the end of Clement of Alexandria, um, his How Shall the Rich Man Be Saved? There's this great story about the Apostle John in Ephesus. And basically, um, I don't want to give away the ending, but he, <laughs> there's this robber guy that he takes and he gives to a bishop. And he says, no, you take care of him. And then John goes away and he comes back to the bishop. And the, the robber guy ended up being bad again. And the bishop was like, he's dead to me. And so it's about John's story of pursuing this guy, this robber, this you know, unsaved, whatever, that the bishop had written off and said he's dead to me. The Apostle John on horseback, and he's got to be like 90-whatever, you know, just in the setting of the story, I'm not saying it's real, Mm -hmm. um, riding after this guy and going to save him and basically saying, I'll give you my life for yours so you can have it back again. I mean, it's... It's yeah. just really interesting stuff, and it's right. just stuck in the back of Clement of Alexandria. That's fascinating, right? So there's that. Um, working on some projects for Lagos, there's a, like I mentioned, a Latin-English interlinear, and we're also going to work on some Latin-Hebrew and Latin-Greek reverse interlinears. Oh, excellent. So that, uh, I think that's really going to be interesting from a text-critical perspective, uh-huh. and also from a perspective that, like I said earlier, the only thing I really know about Latin is it's a lot like Spanish. Yeah. So that kind of stuff is helpful for me. Yeah, good. Um, so working on that, I'm also doing some work personally um, in the pastoral epistles again, coming full circle, um, vocabulary studies, which is basically, um, I said um again, didn't I? Um, Thirty <laughs> hey, times. You're good. You're good. Uh, so really, what that is is it, one of the things that bothers me about commentaries is the citations. People cite a lot of things in commentaries, but not a lot of people look up things in commentaries, right? So what I've been doing with the vocabulary of starting with 1 Timothy, and I'm going to go through the pastorals, is for the words that are infrequent or important or for some reason I think need to be treated, I'm actually working through the citations, right? And then I'm giving you the best ones. So if there is a word that is witnessed either in the Septuagint earlier in a parallel or just because it's an interesting vocabulary term or if there's a witness to the same thing in a later writing like the Pseudepigraphal or Apostolic Fathers, I'm going to give you the citation in English. I'm going to tell you where I got it from. I'm going to tell you all sorts of stuff about it and work through how these things work and how that contributes to the way we understand the text in place in First Timothy. Oh, that's so that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of the thing I'm working on right now. Yeah, that's great. Well, maybe if we can do just maybe one more question sure. and, and kind of turn the corner of some, some of the, the things that you've been talking about. Let's say you have just a few students that are before you looking into MDiv, looking into maybe further studies, looking to try to navigate the world of uh, just kind of the, the SBL world of, of scholarship and being able to contribute. Um, but you have two minutes with them. What, what would you want to share with them? Um, Man, well, it's kind of weird because I'm a little non-traditional here. Um, I didn't get an MDiv or anything like that. 
I would say, number one, the scholar who masters data is the scholar who wins. Mm -hmm. Know how to handle data. Whether that means you actually learn a programming language or not, I'm not saying. But know how your software works. Know how you can extract lists and put them in spreadsheets and work through things and actually annotate your data. You need to be a master of your data because the person who knows their data is the person who wins, I think. Um, the other thing that I would say is, especially at places like SBL, and I might be atypical, um, but SBL is, SBL is about relationship, right? The meetings are fun. There are sessions that are actually good, but the most important thing in my mind at SBL, especially if you're trying to navigate this thing through a, through a graduate degrees and even into an academic career, is building relationships now. So I would say find the people that you want to know and you want to be like and say, do you want to go to lunch? Can I have coffee with you? I want to talk to you about your work. Because honestly, the scholarly trade is reputation. And if you ask somebody about how good they are, usually they're going to want to say, they're going to want to talk to you because these people, this is their life. You know, they spent their, their, their graduate career looking at something and they're going to want to tell you about it probably, or they're going to want to tell you about what they're teaching, or they're going to want to be interested in what you're doing and helping you. And I think that building those relationships and even just taking a step out to do that is something that would be really important for your later career. Um, so sessions are great. Have fun with your friends, go do your stuff but also make sure that you find some people to spend some time with and ask them questions that are relevant to you and say, this is what I'm working on if they're in your field. How, what do you think? Or how could I do it better? Or what books should I be reading? Or anything like that. I mean, I don't know. But it seems to me that starting to cultivate those relationships and being purposeful about it is probably an important thing to do. No, that's great, Rick. I, I appreciate you giving us a few moments of your time and uh, just thankful for all the things that, that you've been able to mention, and hopefully our listeners will benefit from that. Thanks, John. Appreciate it.